Chapter 26 The Bravery of Self-Deception The runaways played from a seedy boombox next to Molly's bed. I had a glass of wine in me and she just emptied her third. After complaining about not being allowed to smoke, she fell back onto her pillow. She just wanted to enjoy her buzz. I understood. But my questions wouldn't wait. I sat up on one elbow and asked, What if you could stop all this, Molly? Just by walking into a room and saying yes? She chuckled and sat back on the bed. Oh, sweetheart. If only it were that simple. But what if it were? Would you open that door? Walk through and leave everything behind? She played along as if it were idle conversation. If I were ever that powerful... Wow. Why do you ask? I lost my nerve and settled back down beside her. Well, to be honest, I'm not even sure why I'm asking. Molly turned toward me, gently pinched my chin between two fingers, and turned my head into a soft kiss. She kissed the lobe of my ear and, when I didn't respond as she expected, stopped to consider my question again. Her left eyebrow drifted up into her forehead, and her expression asked the question, Are you fucking with me, kid? After a moment, she sighed, settled in closer to me, nuzzling my neck. She whispered, You're serious. You can't really talk about it, can you? No. Are you protecting me? Yes. Hmm. If... You say yes, does it mean I'd be one of those things you leave behind? Yes. Jill, are you planning to kill yourself? I... no, I... I didn't expect that question. No, I just won't see any of this again. And that makes what all go away exactly? I can't say exactly. Let me rephrase the question. If you were asked to be part of a team that helped fix this whole mess and, at the very least, would help a lot of people live through this, would you do it? Like, leave HG World and the Down Under? People have done that before. They drove out of here in the middle of the night, took sick patients to the United Nations or whatever, out near I-80. They never came back. Things didn't really get better. What if it's different, and you were sure it would help? She considered the question a moment and then sat up in bed. She put her hand on my knee and stroked my leg gently. You want my permission to leave? You don't need it. She smiled warmly. I have fun with you, Jill. You're funny as hell, hot as hell, but I think you want something of me you know I'm not ready to part with. I told you my story. I hoped you took the message to heart. Assume I didn't. What was that message? Trust no one but yourself. Don't trust that anyone's going to be there tomorrow because we both know that's not true. Don't tie your future to something someone else wants. You got to do what's best for you. If you believe you can be of use out there, be of use out there. Is that what you do in my place, Molly? Shit, yeah. If Paul came to me with an assignment like that and I was sure he wasn't full of shit, yeah. I'd give you the greatest night of your life and kiss you goodbye on the way out. I let that hang in the air for a moment. Molly was sincere and didn't betray an unkind sentiment. She was being honest. 
I think she expected me to react negatively to it, and when I didn't, added, You wanted to find me. Maybe we connected on a level I didn't anticipate. But you came here and you found me. I found my Bible, you found me. We both paid a price for our little journey. I see. I made other sounds too, but none of them held traction long enough to make words. Molly had the kindest eyes in that moment. She squeezed my thigh and smiled, hoping to keep things, well, me, from getting too emotional. Jill, it was sweet. I never had someone speak up for me before. You said to Hank everything I wanted to say, but couldn't because I was on a mission. To get your Bible. Yes, but to keep tabs on Jack and the managers as well. We don't like it when they get all secretive and think they can try to really control things up top. It worked out that Paul needed some intel on Jack because we're not sure Jack is holding up too well. After the whole thing with the ice skates, I understand why. The entire time I was dealing with him, I put myself in that place I go to shut it out. Shut out everything. I kept thinking about you and that kiss. I thought about how you stepped to Hank, how brave you are, and I just got overwhelmed. I didn't think you'd be, well, so receptive. To be honest, I liked it too. A lot. I could continue liking that sort of feeling for a very long time. I suddenly felt myself back in the basement with Kenny Carthizer. This time, I was Kenny. I waited for that dreaded conjunction. But... If you're thinking of stepping away from a responsibility that might help as many people as you say because you are thinking the coolness between us is more important, I need, need you to understand very clearly that I'm not in a place where I can invest what you want from me. It might happen someday. It might not. Once you get over the infatuation that brought you after me against all common sense, you may regret giving up your life there. I don't have one anyway. Paul said that Jack and Jeb were planning a quick exit for me. Look, Jill, I don't know what Paul has in mind for you. A big part of me doesn't want to know. You just have to decide what's best for you because I have to decide what's best for me. If that takes me away from you, well, so be it. Just watch your ass, okay? And if you plan to leave tomorrow, let's make tonight something good. Something memorable. Okay? The truth is refreshing. Sure, it's sad. It hurts when you have to put away the fiction and look at the world the way it really is. I realized that, like everyone else, I complained about living a lie. Molly was my blissful lie. Pretty, exotic, and in danger, I quickly chose to be her white knight and rescue her. She was never in any real danger, never in need of rescuing. It was a bit of role-play that I carried on for weeks. She said we both paid a price for our quests. Molly surrendered another part of herself for her Bible. I gave up what little society I had left for a woman who could walk away from me at any moment and never look back. I thought I had it all under control until she took my hand. I was shaking. She held my trembling left hand to her lips and kissed my knuckle. Closing her eyes as she did so, as if in prayer. Every thought I had which led to me wanting to say, But what about that time when? I had to admit, 
It was a projection of my fantasies, assumption of motives or a deeper connection than really existed. The silence between us lasted a while. I wish I could say I handled it outwardly as well as I'm writing it here. I wish I could say I didn't well up a bit or consider throwing a few hurtful words at Molly over it, but in the end, she was honest. Just as Paul was honest about his plans for me if I decided not to participate in the little science experiment. Where I once had hope and something uniquely mine to sustain that hope, I now had a gaping, bloodless wound. Molly was emotionally offline to me. Her touch and proximity told me I was welcome in her arms and in her bed, but not in her heart. It was not the frame of mind to make a decision. At the time, however, it felt like there was no decision to make. Chapter 27 Nunta Muturi One of Paul's minions just dropped off a room service cart topped with plated pasta and meatballs, garlic bread, and two bottles of red wine. It is rare that anyone in this place has any sort of seasoned food. Molly shared a card from Paul that read, No reason we can't be civilized. Molly explained that he probably made this meal himself. Too bad he couldn't bring himself to deliver it in person. Maybe this is my last entry. Molly has agreed to hang on to the electronic version for me and stash it somewhere that maybe one day aliens or archaeologists can find it. It'll be a backup copy in case my contact on the outside doesn't make it. Or was inside this warehouse the whole time. I, I can't be bothered with that anymore. Maybe tonight is for living. Maybe tonight Red Molly and I can just be people one last time for the fun of it. Tomorrow we'll decide what we want to become. Part 2 Molly? Yes, sweetie? I need you to do something very important for me. What's that? Tomorrow I need you to work with Dr. Yukov. I need you to help me record something. Something very important and incredible. I don't understand. You won't until you're doing it. Would you do it for me if you knew it was the most important thing in the world to me? Record what? I can't tell you that just yet. I can tell you it may be very painful. But I need you to trust me that it will be worth it to see it through. You are not making sense. Is this Paul's plan? No. It's mine. How do I do it? You're already doing it. You're typing into my laptop. You're hearing my voice and typing our words. I can't type. That's okay. I can. What? Wake up. Part 3 Disorganized notes. I am told I will never wake up again as myself. Never again myself. Never again alone. Dry cold to wet cold. 
broken pipes, raw sewer, <laughs> crap-covered eaters, dim light and the haze of panic that clouds all memories of dangerous flight. So very cold. Fifty paces back, left turn, third door on right, marked with black marker, straight back to dorm. It's a maze of unmarked passages, and the eaters have snatched away two of the crew. Don't stop. Don't ever stop. A fallen miner's job is to slow down the mob. Lost dead ends. One passage bleeds into another. In the panic, it maps into a circle. No more eaters, just fading light. Gasping for air thick with filth and humidity. The way out is compromised. Have to wait for rescue. I want to light a fire. The voice is dead. Can't tell if this is a dream. I can't be loose in the down under. Molly? Molly, if you can hear me, stop typing. Wake up. Find me. Help! This... This is... Molly's memory melting into dream. This is where Molly goes when she sleeps. How horrible to be trapped in this maze in the dark every night, alone. In the waking world, her fingers glide across the laptop keys effortlessly. Her fingers, my thoughts, her images. It must be all so confusing to her. Like a dream of sailing a small boat while cooking on a stove. Yet, she still transcribes. I did not realize her pain. I feel it and took it to be my own. Poor Molly. To be offered love and accept only moments of pleasure is the saddest thing I've ever heard in all these experiences I share. It exposes a sad truth about her and her intentions toward me. She wanders down here looking for an exit, passing so many doors and never trying to open them. I cannot lead you out of this darkness, my love. You are forever lost to the world, trapped in yourself. Allowing you to see me only forces you to ignore me. When you cannot, you try to expel me. You lie when you say you just want to protect me. You want to protect yourself. It is time to leave your dream and come into mine. Come. Let me show you my prison. Part 4 You are not you anymore. You are not you anymore. You are never again. You are breath in the air, rain in a river. I can't hear you through the screams. You are not you anymore. Don't make me write this for you anymore. I can't stand a hundred eyes staring. I can't get them to leave. I want to sleep, but they won't leave. This is my home now, Molly. Keep recording, my love. Part 5 So many contradictions have to die. Pieces of so many individuals cannot coexist, but there will be a loss of great experiences. I can see years and places I've never been. Right now, there is no we because I am an individual. I live. So far, so far, 
I am not dead. But I've experienced it. Experiencing it. Past tense, present tense, first person and third. I'm killing and being killed, simultaneously terrifyingly intimate and alien. Memories I cannot close my eyes to. Realities that always and never were part of my life woven into my histories. How else can I explain? I risk losing Jill Woodbine in the flood of memories and feelings, the chemistry of experience at work in a single mind. I explore experiences of physical memory. To be loved and abandoned, cherished and abused. Initially, these memories were academic, but I feel the chemical change in my body so that I feel what it is like to want a man inside me and then to be a man inside a woman, to give birth and to lose a life inside me. Horrible deaths and little ones. Each time I pull away when the sensations become too much, still I live. Still I am Jill Woodbine. For now. For now. Where did Jill Woodbine live? When did she live? Where are her friends? All dead? Molly. Molly. Jill Woodbine was a good choice. Do not fear, Molly. I keep your secrets. Why are you afraid? My name is Lucille, don't you remember? We shared so much together and... Wait. I have to stop. I'm lost. I'm drowning in so many lives. My name is Jim Sale. No, it is Jill Woodbine. Jill Woodbine. My body is long and thin. My blood is warm. Keep writing. My name is Jill Woodbine. My anchor is my red molly. Loud sweatpants and messy hair. A crooked smile, lost on a highway. She's everywhere and gone. Never been. A myth. I cannot see her face and have to scroll back up to remember her name. Who is Molly? I see her face peeking through the crowd of other memories. Just a kiss in the darkness. Thank gods for the diary. The diary is my anchor. I lost you before, Molly. I'll find you again. My body is young and fit and female, and I am backspacing over six different names until I remember the correct one. Sudden flashes, quick and fleeting, bleed through and stab me. I am feverish. My head is worse than any migraine I've ever had. It is cold and dark and silent everywhere on earth but inside my head. Make it stop! Make it stop! Make it... I am... What? I... Am... Lost... Part... Six... Fever... Pain... Throat swells... Hoarse... 
vomited blood. Assured it is not bad displacement of myself. They hid me behind a wall inside my mind. I have ghosts inside my head. I am a ghost in my own body. Hurt. Those were the hardest words ever written. So cold. Clothes burn me. Lay naked on them in this room. Room or tomb. So much pain. Oreo cookies. Bitter coffee. In your arms when I'm with you. With my lucky charms. Policeman on a horse. A soldier on the roof of a bus. David and a golf club. The tingle rushing through me in a dark public bathroom. Shooting stars, cries of alarm, blood, diplomas, and rayon robes. Expensive satin lining in a box destined for the ground. All night, head pounding. Belly aching from bitter coffee. Stealing my roommate's cookies, too starved to taste them. Breakfast in the commissary, bowls of cereal, problems of home, ordinary, treading and desiring. Control, fault, delete. Part 7 Molly She came to the exam room, put a gun to my head, and asked me if I wanted to end this. She cried through it all. Self-preservation is a powerful force in me now, and I nearly killed her. Molly just does not understand. Even as I force her to transcribe, tears warm her cold cheeks. I had to force her because she is the keeper of truth now. She wants to run screaming from what she sees in my head, what the contents of my own shows her about the world. The new world coming atop the world she cannot understand. She is my precious red Molly. I have a different lust for her now, triggered by her touch and her scent. I want my tongue on her. I want my teeth in her. Not because I want to hurt her, but because I want her. I want to spread myself to her. Old instincts. New motives. My lips are cold. My flesh is pale. I won't forget the look of shock on Molly's face when the light from the hallway crossed over my naked body this morning. I was so close to death. She would kiss me if I just asked. I could make her. She would embrace me without hesitation. But someone was with her. No. On her. I could smell Paul. I could smell him on Molly. His scent enraged me. I could smell his lust, his grease and jet skin smeared over her neck and cheeks. I could smell hers as well. I'm sorry, Molly.
do what you must and live. Your lies are no different than mine. I see how things really happened in the motel. I see it clearly. It is different than I pictured when you held me captivated by your tale of escape. I do not blame you. Chance favors the prepared mind, my love. Better you than them. Promise me, though, when your charms or usefulness to Paul come to an end, switch your place in his mind with a bullet. Or save it for yourself, my love. Part 8 Nothing to do now but wait. The voices in my head are in concert, stripped of their individuality. There is my voice, their memories, and the silence inside calls my attention to the hundreds around me. They ring familiar. When I know them, they appear with me in the darkness. They do not know I am peeking in. Jenny Jo is a jumble of disconnected, fearful thoughts. She spends most of her energy holding back a wave of terrible memories, barricading them with rules and work, meaningless work concepts that turn the real people around her into statistics and stereotypes. Poor Ruby has a statue of Jack in her mind. Before it, she kneels. She has buried her dead and moved on. Jebediah is so much like the Eaters, but with an intentional cruelty. In his mind, he is the warden to countless imprisoned thoughts and fantasies. His mind is diseased and blackened with cells rusted shut forever. Yet he keeps watch, peeking into small windows to admire his collection. I dare not look over his shoulder. He is a murderer starting at a young age. Sand at his feet on the floor of the prison, hot air across the block. His mind gives me the feeling of being held down on hot asphalt. Part of me finds him fascinating, but I have to leave him. David's mind is peaceful. He dreams of flying over the empty countryside, never landing, never slowing, always seeking the horizon. He mourns for me and is one of only a few who have me in their hearts. Elsewhere, I suspect I am interred in the mass grave of repressed loss or merely forgotten. It is nearly over now. I walked with something just a half step behind me. It feels like an echo, a bleed from another reality that is a half second behind, close enough that I sometimes feel warm breath on the back of my neck. Maybe it's the product of being so afraid and so often alone in the dark of the down under. Once, alone with my thoughts and lost in the catacombs, I asked that fellow traveler, Which way should we go? I heard an answer. A shriek through the gulf of space between atoms into my mind. Run! The impact was like plummeting into freezing water. It swept over me and bled the heat and energy from my body. My knees buckled and I fell straight down, caps to concrete, before folding up into a ball shaking. Alone, 
exposed in a snowstorm, with the atoms of two worlds scraping past another, creating a roar of static, through which a voice kept screaming, Run! 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 Lips so close they warmed the flesh, but a voice far away as the stars. Each word lay another inch of black ice over me. The sensation of that being enveloped me, and then... I don't know. It took up space within me. The form and mass of this second entity settled into my body like a ghost, displacing my insides, choking me as it struggled for the same air, forcing open my welling eyes. In a wave of nausea, I heaved the contents of my stomach. The pressure forced me to open my bladder and bowels. I shook with pain and electricity from an overloaded nervous system. My spine shuddered and my fist clenched hard enough to drive my nails into my palms. My calves and left arm cramped. I could not breathe. I could not scream. And the whisper behind my ear roared inside my head. Run! 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 I smelted into warm pools and the energy of its occupation warmed my body. Sweat drenched. A view of two worlds behind my eyes, the sound of two worlds in my ears, the thoughts of two people in pain. It settled into gray. For a moment, I wondered if I'd crossed over into that other place, if the gray leather walls around me were real, if the blue veins and pulsing arteries built into them were warm to the touch in the same way the concrete below was now soft and warm. No more a blanket of ice. I lived in the womb of this other world while at the same time knowing the reality of the cold concrete. Run. 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 I spoke the words this time. They were no longer for me, but for the girl in the cold, lying helpless on the floor. I pleaded with her to fight on. We were passing through one another, the gravity of our beings slowed, but inevitably separating again. My lips a hair's breadth behind hers. I was in her world now, and she in mine. I lived in a body barely conceived and yet fully grown, attached to the womb of some greater mother. Perfect and peaceful. I could have faded away into it, but for the rats coming from my old body and the soul left within it. I strained to see through my own eyes again. The static of that strange gulf fell like snow over the image, but what I saw coming up the corridor was clear enough. Rats. Giant rats advanced along the end part of their maze, bright red eyes shining absently and then focused on my writhing form. I was at the end of the maze. I was the prize. I would be consumed. Rats! Run! Rats! Run! Suddenly, they were no longer rats. Mother was frying them on the stove in the house where I grew up. She had one skinned and boned, sizzling with Mama's usual mix of vegetables and spices. Three others hung by the tail from a rack, bleeding from the neck into a tray on the counter behind her. 
Father was near, but I couldn't see him. The scene was our home in Titusville, but Mama's age put her past those years. Mother in her bloody apron, a gripping handprint on the front and a trail bleeding down to her white dancing shoes. She poked at the skillet with a hunting knife. Father was near. Father was always near, even after he died. To the sound of her baking bell, Mother removed Father's roasted head from the oven and tossed it and the smoking pan into the trash. The black, eyeless, crackling head scaled the side of the trash on Spider's legs, peeked over the rim, and propped itself up on two hairy, talon-tipped legs. The skin flaked and fell like snow as it spoke. Mind your mother. Mind your mother. Run, run, rats, run, rats. As mother cut up the rat within the skillet, father carried himself on his spider legs across the kitchen floor and up onto the breakfast table. Mother placed a slice on a large wooden spoon and took it to my father. Father's mouth widened into a circle of fangs glistening with yellow pus. As mother slipped the spoon into the maw, a thousand baby spiders poured from father's empty sockets onto the spoon up mother's arms and began to feed. Mother did not flinch and her smile did not fade. She looked at me with love in her eyes, pride and affection. Even when the tiny arachnoids chewed through the skin of her face. Father leapt from the table and on to mother. She fell to the kitchen floor. The way she did when she learned dad died and father began stabbing her in the belly with the spikes on the end of each leg. He did so moaning and grunting with each violent penetration that sent blood and spider babies into the air. He chewed his way into her chest, using fangs like fingers to pry open her ribs and dig inside mother to extract her beating heart. Father tore it free from its network of veins and arteries and swallowed it whole as the cavity swelled with blood and spiders. Mother disappeared into a silk cocoon, and father dragged her away out the back door. The lights dimmed with the closing of the door, and I returned to blackness, cold and pain. I was naked and alone in a different place. Across the stars, my father's voice informed me I was inside the spider's belly. Skin burned. I could feel the spiders inside me, filling my stomach and my guts, stinging and biting, turning my flesh to black, dead matter. Thousands, tens of thousands, chewing through my muscles and riding the currents of my nerves and bloodstream. I had no urge to scream. I had no strength to panic. My breath slowed. My heart softened its beat to the point I could no longer feel it. Finally, as if waiting for my will to fade completely, the spiders poured into and filled my lungs and consumed my quiet, still heart. No more, Jelly. No more. No more. No more. Happily ever after. Happy ever after. Happy ending. Make it stop. No more. Finally, 
my poor Red Molly. Molly sleeps so deep now that even I cannot reach her. Her final thoughts were screams from her soul. Sleep well, my love. You'll see such wonders beyond the Hyades. I can type the rest out from here. An infinite passing through an instant. I felt the whole of everything well up through my body, shattering the bonds between my atoms, and I was nothing but light. The bliss of being free of the pain, untethered by weight or mass, simply radiant, streaking through the void, converting all I touched to light, birthing a new universe. I contained within me the sum of all that created me, from the earliest star matter to the first organic trace of humanity through a hundred thousand generations of rutting and struggling, killing and surviving the horrors of the natural world. I could reach back into myself and gather the pieces of myself from that rich past and conjure images from those ancient days. Here, the line ends. I am not dead. I am infinite. I am riding the ray past Barnard Star, leading the end of the old becoming. I know not what. Each world, each sun, each piece of the universe encountered began as I am, at first as light, and then fire, and finally renewed. No longer a dark universe, it was one of light and warmth and promise. Until the end, the edge, the barrier of it all could be seen. No, not seen. Understood. My journey consumed the last of all matter in the universe, and it filled the last inch of this universe. The light struck ultimate darkness, bent away from points it could not penetrate, and turned back on itself. Every point connected to every other point of light simultaneously, yet across the eons, all of the universe coalescing into a single image of nearly infinite complexity and knowledge. A single street in a familiar neighborhood. Fleming Street. A home for every life and every life a home. I drive up Fleming Street from the highway, home from school at last. It is night out, but the lights in the front bay windows and on the lamps along the street are warm and inviting. I know all the people in my neighborhood. It seems I've known them all my life. I pass Lucille, who is rocking the mom jeans while sweeping the autumn leaves from her driveway. She waves and then turns to her husband, who is standing at the window. There's an old pickup truck in the garage when I pull in and a banner across the door that reads, Welcome Home. I leave my bags in the car and march straight in, through the garage and into the door that will lead to the kitchen. I can already smell the roast. I can hear Ray Orbison and laughter behind the door. When I open the door, I see my mother pulling biscuits from the stove. I know they're all slightly burnt on the bottom. They always are. And there's my father in coveralls, looking like he should, healthy, tanned, and happy. He's holding a conversation with the severed head of my stepfather, which is the centerpiece of our dining room table. Dad has a tumbler of scotch. 
My stepdad's head is set in a pan in a thin pool of blackened lies, and the top of his head is opened into a bowl of bitter, shattered expectations. That food is not for us. This is how he will live in my new home. Dad sees me and shouts my name. It spooks Mom, but she stops pulling the foil off the sweet potatoes to laugh and cheer. Dad smiles big and dopey the way he does only after his second tumbler takes hold. He's coming to give me a bear hug, I know it. Mom shakes her head in playful exasperation as she takes the desserts from the fridge, and I see all the pieces of stepdad we've stocked up on for the winter. We are having roast tonight. And I will sleep in my own bed. When Molly returns from the Hyades, she has a place in my home, too. Maybe we'll have a neighborhood cookout when she comes here to stay. Epilogue Winter is almost here. Above me and around me, scores of human beings prepare. Fires burn at night up above. The eaters freeze and hibernate. Unlike the living, the dead have no fear of winter. The world to them is unrelenting cold. Eternal night. When comes the thaw, the hunt will begin again. I am not what they are. Through me, our visitors learned the music of this world. Just as they learn within me, my hosts will try to learn about what I've become. Outside the dream, my bed is stainless steel. My house is a jail cell. My neighbors are my keepers who peer in on me and feed me blood, calling it mercy. They are unaware that I can smell their fear and lust through the delivery slot. They are unaware that I can touch them in their dreams. They think they keep me weak. I agree to chain myself for their inspections and their probes. I lay prone for their experiments. What am I? They ask. So do I. I'm not an eater. I'm not a ghoul. What am I? I do not want flesh, but I crave fresh living blood. It sustains me, keeps my mind sharp. Fresh blood sustains me and heals my torn and injured joints and muscles. If it seems as though I am strong, that comes from feeling little pain. <laughs> Having confronted death, I don't see it as you do. I am not immortal. This body will rot. 
eventually. My back where my blood pooled as I lay in death. The skin is bruised the color of the deepest depths of holly. It will heal in time. My young body does not betray my true age. My eyes are jaundiced, my iris the color of old paper. On the other hand, the spectrum of light I perceive is broader than in life. The sounds I hear beyond human limits. I have no romantic notions, no hate or love for humans. I empathize because I retain my memories. But my heart beats differently, slow as in sleep. And I think I will always be cold. I have no carnal desires nor maternal instincts, except the passage of myself into others as I drink from their arteries. I... I am a vampire. I am not alive, not dead, and therefore something in between. A gothic vision of undeath, I think. I scheme. I hunger. I do not sparkle. But I also do not die in the light. I do not transform into bats or rats. I do not live in the earth of my burial or count mustard seeds thrown into my path. My lovely doctor has a pure heart. He sees me as a child. Paul Handsome sees me as a monster and imagines me burning to death. He's afraid that I might go free and feast not only on the Morlocks of the Down Under, but on the Eloy above an HG world. He does not understand that by night, I wander through the darkest parts of his mind. I am rewriting his history. I toy with him as he did me. Winter falls and I wander the dreamscapes of my keepers. In those dreams, I plant seeds. I share subtle ideas. Far above all the secrets I ever hoped to uncover are laid plain. The savage and the desperate. The great and the base. I lay seeds in their mind to prepare them for what's to come. In Jebediah. In Jack. In Hank. In Paul. Sleep through the winter and dream, my dears. When it is time, I will call to you. And the next age of humankind will begin. Editor's Note Face this world Learn its ways Watch it Be careful of too hasty guesses at its meaning In the end you will find clues to it all 
quotation of author H.G. Wells found written at the back of Molly's Bible and in the footnotes of the diary of Jill Woodbine. The End The story of Jill Woodbine continues in Season 2 of H.G. World, coming soon from 3015 North Studios.